Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by the lawyers at Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigator with Miller & Chevalier, and I'm joined by my co-host, uh, my colleague, international tax and tax policy expert, Lauren Pons. We're going to stick with uh, transfer pricing as the main topic for our third podcast in a row. And the last two episodes, we discussed the pending Facebook transfer pricing case in the tax court. Today's, de- today's guest actually happens to be an expert witness in that case. We're obviously not going to discuss the substance of that case with him today. Uh, but our guest today is Dr. Michael Craig. Mike's the uh, principal and chairman of the Brattle Group an economic consulting firm based out of Boston. Mike began his career as a professor of economics at Columbia University and at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, a pretty prestigious place where I've, I've worked with several experts from, from the Anderson School. More recently, Mike has done economic consulting for a host of large corporations and government agencies and has often served as an economic expert in transfer pricing cases. We brought Mike on to discuss some alternative or maybe underutilized modes of reaching arm's length prices in the transfer pricing context. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you. It's very nice to join uh, both of you and I appreciate the opportunity. So the idea behind Tax Break is to provide listeners with some perspectives on select tax issues we think are interesting. We want to go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so our listeners can follow along without a copy of the regs or, in this case, some economic textbooks in front of them. As always, first, a disclaimer, tax break is not intended to be legal advice, and you cannot rely on it as legal advice. Its content reflects only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts or guests. So, Lauren, I want to sort of talk, since we're going to talk about some alternative or innovative modes of of transfer pricing valuation, I wonder if we could kick it off by, uh, you know, you giving us, you and and, and Mike giving us some basics as to sort of what are the typical modes of transfer pricing valuation that we see in, 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 I guess, sort of the lion's share of the easy cases. Sure. So, you know, for the for the uninitiated or, or the neophyte um, in this space, we can look to um, the regulations, which give us a little bit of a or a lot of information as to how to price certain transactions. And so under the 482-4 regs for intangibles, uh, there are several methods, uh, cut and cup for um, kind of routine situations, the comparable profits uh, method, CPM. And then there's also a reference to the residual profit split, which we use when uh, the parties to the transaction each have non-routine intangibles to which they they contribute to the uh, transaction. And then further in the dash seven regs, when you're in the context of a cost sharing arrangement, there are other methods for valuing the um, the buy-in payment, as it as it used to be called, platform contribution transaction, as it is currently called. Um, and so that's kind of an import of the concepts in the Dash Four regs, but also references some some new methods: uh, acquisition price method, market cap method, uh, income method is probably the one that uh, I have seen the most often. And so looking at what um, income you can be expected to generate from this contributed um, intangible and then kind of discounting that that amount back to the present to get to what you should value it as. 
And that is a non-economist definition of how to do a discounted cash flow. So Mike, feel free to uh, put some more color on that. Oh, I thought that was a great answer. Um, and and so Mike and, and Lauren, I mean, when when we have sort of a, a typical ordinary run of the mill transfer pricing question, I take it that you know there there's a sort of there's a hierarchy of methods that are easier or even possibly more reliable. So that you know if you're in the instance of tangible assets, you may have some easily some readily available cuts or cups that make things easy. Is that right, Mike? Yeah, in general, the regulations, I think, are based upon the idea that uh, markets are efficient uh, and that they reflect competitive outcomes. And so uh, when I think about what a you know, routine transaction is, is, is one where you have uh, readily observable markets, whether it be you know, to identify uh, a price or an alternative transaction, a royalty rate. Um, all of those, uh, you, know, you see, uh, you know, single-purpose transactions, which allow you to then, uh, you know, with confidence, measure what the an arm's-length relationship would be for an intercompany transaction, and makes it easy for the IRS to sort of price get to the right price of tangible goods going across border. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know. Uh, it's it's always very easy when you see single purpose companies out there. Uh, you know the I think the for economists and, and lawyers where uh, the world gets complicated is when a corporation was formed in the first place to deal with all of the incentive and control problems that uh, make it the more efficient outcome uh, for you know for profit maximizing firms. So. It's, you know, the hard cases come up, you know, when the reason for the uh, the existence of the corporation is uh, is at play. Right. And Steve, we should we should note that your reference to hierarchy is in terms of complexity and not preference. Right. There is no hierarchy of methods in terms of which one is preferable in any given situation. Right. It's the rely <laughs> the reliability of the methods depends on the depends on the. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 uh the the actual context right whereas right. uh but but in terms of if you're pricing a particular asset or service uh in and you think that you can go out into the market and find a good comp that's sort of the first your first course i, I take it as an economist or even as a transfer pricing advisor right right you still have to keep in mind the best method so the best method is usually the one that's most easily and and um accurately applied right yeah i think it uh it, it basically follows you know scientific principles what's going to lead to the most reliable you know, most accurate outcome yeah so but by the time lawyers and certainly litigators like me get involved and by the time we're retaining expert witnesses like like mike often does um we're usually talking about some sort of higher order question that's that's trickier and today mike we wanted to talk about a couple of things that 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 you sort of raised with me before and that i thought would be interesting interesting topics um 
which which are sort of different ways of thinking about the modes of analysis and maybe some sort of underutilized thinking that that hasn't made its way uh, into sort of the the main <laughs> the mainstream of of transfer pricing thinking. And the first you raised was uh, was sort of the kinds of economic analyses that happen in antitrust litigation and how how those might inform um, some transfer pricing valuation. So you've done some some antitrust uh, expert work. Can you tell us a little bit about what the role of the economist is? We know the role of the economist in transfer pricing, right? It's to sort of get us to the right arm's length price. What's the role of the economic expert in, in antitrust litigation? Yeah, and Ed, I, I actually think the roles are fairly similar. Um, but using a quite different vocabulary. So um, at the core of antitrust is the identification of, is there market power? And did the company extend their uh, market power either um, uh, through uh, uh, additional uh, you know, transactions in, in other markets or restraints that they impose in, in other markets, or did they uh, also um, coordinate with some in an illegal manner. So it's all about uh, is there market power and uh, how is that market power utilized? So that raises two, so kind of I raised three questions there. One is uh, what's the market? Uh, so there's an, you know, uh, economists define what markets are. Um, second, uh, they then uh, undertake the exercise of answering is there market power within that market? Um, and then uh, typically there's a dispute over uh, some, uh, in litigation at least, there's a dispute over some action uh, the defendant took, uh, which would have an anti-competitive effect. And so those are, I say, that kind of the, the three things that economists are doing: uh, markets, market power, and effects. And then what, so when you talk about sort of defining the market, I mean, that, that seems to me like something of a unique uh, or differentiator from what's happening in the transfer pricing context in the sense that you're sort of, your, your, your analysis isn't focused on narrowly on a particular sort of price of a particular transaction, but rather uh, it's, a, it's an analysis of sort of the broader market and what, what, what the mechanics of that market. Is that fair? It can be, uh, but not necessarily. So, uh, you know, in answering what's, you know, defining the market, uh, you know, often there's something utilized called the hypothetical monopolist test. And so you're looking to, you start with the subject uh, product and then ask, you know, could a monopolist in uh, this particular market uh, narrowly define, could they raise price? And they can only raise price when there isn't a competitive effect from substitutes for that product. And so you're kind of expanding the market up to the point where a monopolist uh, doesn't face competition from another product. And, you know, in, um, that's actually pretty important in uh, the world of transfer pricing because uh, geographic markets are at the core of, uh, uh, of, of transfer pricing and often, there's a statement uh, that someone will make about, oh, they can just open up, a, you know, put a plant here or, you know, do something there without recognizing that the geographic market actually plays a, a big role in defining what the price would be the, and the intercompany price. 
Yeah, Mike, that, that reminds me of um, kind of maybe 10 years ago or so, the arguments that some of the larger emerging markets were making in terms of the value of just being a player in their geographic market should, should kind of um, not dictate, but certainly inform uh, the transfer price, uh, the profit attributable to to um, income that would stay in that market, right? So uh, marketing intangibles just really were attributable to the folks, the size of the market, the ability to be the first mover in that market. Um, and I do think that that conversation has kind of informed what's happening now with the um, digital economy work that the OECD is doing. And the power of certain um, companies to to really exploit the market um, in this case remotely, but um, you know the the market itself as as the value driver. Yeah, and it's and, and it, the the piece that is always at issue for um, uh, economists in this market definition is the consumer. Mm-hmm. And so, if we take a consumer perspective on marketing intangibles. There, the question is, well, what does the consumer actually know uh, about a particular brand? Right. So obviously, uh, I, you know, the example I like to to give, um, uh, my kids know what Jewel is, uh, <laughs> but when I ask them about the Marlboro Man, uh, they don't. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm obviously identifying my age here, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so I don't know whether you guys know about the Marble Man, but uh, uh, it's such an iconic image that it, it's almost mystifying that, you know, our kids don't actually know it. <laughs> so that really, to me, reflects really well this idea of, well, what does, you know, what's the brand value that, I, you know, the Marble Man? Well, for 20-year-olds, yeah. zero, right? Yeah. And, and that's because, you know, you couldn't make the investment in those consumers to make them aware of, what that icon actually stood for. Yeah. Yeah. So how, so, I mean, maybe could you talk about some of the sort of specific questions that, that, uh, that you've had to address and sort of as an economist in, in antitrust cases and, and with an eye towards sort of how those, those kinds of analyses might apply in, in the transfer pricing context. Yeah. So one of the areas, which is, um, uh, received a lot of attention uh, in the antitrust world these days is about um, uh, networks and uh, platforms. And the concept of a two-sided market was uh, created by the Supreme Court a couple of years ago uh, in a ruling called the Amex ruling, where they identified that a transaction market is two-sided and you need to consider not only the consumers in defining the market, but you also need to consider uh, you know, merchants, the other side of, uh, the, uh, of a transaction. And uh, they left open the question of, does that apply to all platforms? So they didn't answer uh, whether you need to uh, consider you know, um, a game platform, for instance, as a two-sided market. Now economists identify, readily identify that there's a positive feedback from uh, uh, consumers uh, uh, you know, playing on many games, creating a network effect there that then has a feedback to uh, the game designer who then takes advantage of that and looks to create uh, games. And uh, that then has its own uh, compounding um, 
uh, network effect. Now, what's interesting uh, when you then bring that to the world of uh, uh, tax is that the understanding of platform intangibles uh, doesn't have the same um, level of uh, rigor that you see in the competition world because in competition economics, you're constantly asking yourself this question, what's the substitute? What's the barrier to entry? Uh, what's the competitive alternative? Which doesn't really come in when um, a taxing authority says, oh, this is a platform intangible. And so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, to me as a, as a practitioner in both, uh, in both uh, areas of the law, it's interesting to see where one has developed uh, to a, you know, in, a, in a way that should be complementary, but doesn't actually play a um, uh, kind of a, a role in uh, uh, educating uh, uh, decision makers uh, in both contexts. Lauren, Lauren, that sort of brings to mind the sort of realistic alternatives. I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> what are your, the barriers to entry? Can you do this on your own or is it better to cost share with someone and develop it together? Um, you know, the costs of not only the, the cost of doing it on your own, but the actual, can you do it? Um, is it, is it even viable? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, I, and I think in this realistic alternative um, perspective, uh, it's interesting to compare a, a kind of a Chicago style economist who sees competition everywhere to a um, neo-Keynesian economist that sees a lot of friction uh, that arises in the economy from information and hence risk. And so take the realistic alternative. Um, Often for a new product, uh, you know, the risk that's involved uh, in uh, building the market, you know, producing might be one thing, building the market and the consumer's awareness uh, can be very, uh, can be very challenging. So Mike, it, it seems like, I mean, and, and, and Lauren, I think you'd agree with this, that, that while, while the realistic alternatives language has been in the regs for, for some time, it sounds like there's we haven't seen a lot of case law on realistic alternatives to this point and we don't have a lot of guidance on what it means to sort of consider realistic alternatives but what what i hear you saying mike is that is that there are lots of ways in which the kinds of problems that economists tackle in the antitrust context can inform that kind of realistic alternatives analysis yeah, I think that's right. The other place that uh, provides, I think, a, a useful context is in the world of um, uh, uh, venture investing uh, in private equity, which are um, not well understood to be, you know, happening at very different stages of a company's life cycle. So venture capital is, uh, you know, typically taking a company that has developed a market, so they've you know overcome one of the major hurdles of actually getting the <laughs> the product off the ground, and then you know financing the growth of the company. Growth of the market is typically what is being invested in by a venture capitalist in terms of uh, building up a sales force and uh, creating uh, you know creating customer relationships, and that's usually what the next stage of investment made with venture capital. Sometimes it's uh, you know in, in a in the context of, let's say, a bio uh, 
pharmaceutical company. It's about uh, you know, creating information as it relates to uh, uh, whether a drug is effective or not. But in either case, it's kind of going through the stage of building a market. Private equity firm is, is often taking uh, an entity where you see that there's a, a lot of inefficiency and that you, you, you face the opportunity uh, to either remove that inefficiency by having control or um, you, you also see ability to combine aspects of one company in your portfolio with another company. So you can divide up your complementary assets uh, to create value that way as well. And so do you think the ability or inability of a, a company at whatever point it is in its own life cycle to attract venture capital speaks to what their realistic alternative might be? Um, you know, so your inability to attract um, capital, for example, might speak to kind of the where you are as a company and, and whether people think you're actually viable or useful. Um, and so you might be forced in some in some instances to cost share because you really can't do this on your own as opposed to. But I, I feel like anytime you would get, even if you did get venture capital, you know, it's, it still speaks to your inability to do some things on your own because you can't afford it. Right. I mean, you know, a company is uh, often expanding into a new geography. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the reason they don't set up, uh, you know, they can often set up a joint venture. So that's always, uh, you know, uh, I should say it's often in the mind of, uh, uh, of, a, of a partner uh, of a company thinking about moving into a geography where they don't have experience. Um, but the reason they might not do that is that they want to have control over how the asset is deployed, uh, you know, uh, how it's uh, developed, um, and then uh, what the follow-on uh, that comes from that. And so, if it's you know if it's very predictable what the future is going to look like, then uh, uh, setting up a joint venture uh, or um, you know licensing out the you know whatever it is that you're trying to uh, develop that becomes a, a straightforward transaction. It's much more difficult when there's going to be a lot of decision making along the way mm -hmm. to develop the uh, the market and uh, uh, whatever the alternative geography is. Lauren, I think I think the realistic alternatives question is interesting in that in that venture capital context. But I wonder, Mike, if it also if that also is a way of thinking about some of the platform contribution transactions that are the subject of in the of the dash seven regs in the sense that um, you know if if you have a technology that it's in its infancy or or a product or some kind of intangible that's in its infancy uh, that venture capital model might be a sort of a, a mechanism for for pricing a transaction like that more accurately than some sort of other other analysis. Does that sound reasonable? I mean, it could be. Uh, it, there's uh, in, in terms of uh, what goes into that and uh, identifying you know what the you know potential growth rate looks like becomes really important uh, because uh, you know typically a venture investment is only made for five seven years. We're looking to uh, you know, get a, a large 
return. And so they're typically only going to be investing in you know, things where there's potentially a high growth rate. Um, and so that becomes you know, the, the, an important question. And then the other part of it that becomes uh, uh, equally important is uh, what the competitive alternative is um, and where you are in the platform development uh, and speaks to probably less about the technology and more about the uh, consumer uh, awareness of, uh, the, uh, of that technology and uh, its compatibility with uh, other aspects of, of the market. So. And uh, sort of the the reliability with which you can make right. growth predictions and that exactly kind of yeah. yeah and so be that the income method becomes I think quite interesting in that context mm -hmm. because you do um, uh, if you if you for instance if you look at a you know a typical damages scenario in a securities matter or a um, you know broken transaction matter where you know, someone, uh, you know, right now, it's, you know, there are a lot of cases where you're, you know, drawing on material adverse event clauses. Mm -hmm. Much of those, much of that uh, evolves the question, well, what was the, what were the growth prospects of this company? And so there's a, there's a, you know, a lot of uh, uh, development of evidence on that question, which you don't quite see that uh, same degree of rigor placed in a, uh, uh, in a transfer pricing matter, even though, for instance, the uh, the dollars are often substantially larger, uh, and the and the resources that are put into the transact into the litigation are you know very large. So it's interesting where the you know as you look across different uh, aspects of law, where what the evidentiary requirements are uh, by area, and and what's the sort of additional rigor that you would see in that. The, in the antitrust context that that or or in that sort of broken transaction context that maybe could be brought to bear in in the transfer pricing context well um there's a you know, there's a lot that's done on what the contemporary uh uh market looks like um and so whether you know inside of both of the companies at issue as well as what's happening uh, outside, and so there's a, uh, I, I would say there's a greater uh, appetite for drawing on kind of what exactly the world looks like at that point in time, and there's less of that that I would say that's done at the point of a you know cost sharing agreement, for instance. You know, uh, you know if you you drill in on the actual dates, <laughs> uh, you know the actual timing matters a lot in those uh, in these. Uh, you know, a broken transaction type cases. Yeah, sounds. It just sounds like a more holistic approach to. It to, is. <laughs> it does sound that way, but it's also because you're looking backward, right? So you've already had the event that made the transaction break, whereas yeah. in a cost sharing context, you're trying to, in some ways, foresee you know what's going to happen but you have a snapshot as of the day you enter into the cost sharing arrangement and price the buy-in that you know this is what we think is going to happen um yeah and you know on that is you know one of the things that uh i've been surprised at as a, a transfer pricing practitioner is that there's a very wide range of approaches taken to preparing documentation mm -hmm. uh, uh <laughs> I'm sure Steve is uh, well aware of uh, what that range looks like, but 
there are you know tax directors who you know generate a lot of value for their companies because they you know think of a creative transaction but most importantly they put together the you know the contemporaneous evidence right. and the contemporaneous contracts so that it has a much greater sense of reality than just somebody kind of you know, I'm struck sometimes that you'll have a you know, multi-billion dollar transfer pricing deal written on two pieces of paper uh, uh the the amount of risk that is put at place there is is huge but it's understandable because you know the audit's going to take three years and another couple of years after that and you know you're you know you're basically at the end of you know the cfo's career by that point and uh <laughs> you know he doesn't care so i it's, yeah uh, or in the and the tax director sees there being some risk in assembling a, a mass of evidence that <laughs> that they not, don't yeah. they may not understand yeah so i don't know should the court draw you know draw a negative inference then steve <laughs> <laughs> i hope not <laughs> um so let's move to another concept that that you talked about before uh which is the this notion of of a minority discount and how a mm. minority discount might be informative in some transfer pricing context. So first, maybe if you could explain what, what that means, what, what a minority discount is. Yeah, so from an economist's perspective, uh, the minority discount is um, looking at uh, how markets uh, discount uh, transactions where uh, there isn't really a lot of control that's uh, 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 transferred in the transaction. And so, um, you often see, for instance, you know, when you know when one company is taking over another company, that there's you know a premium that's paid for for that control that they get uh, uh, you know to take uh, take advantage of it. the The hard thing in, in that second example is identifying what uh, is the source of the premium, and is it going to be kind of synergies, which is the euphemism for cost cutting. Um, is it complementary uh, complementarity where you're bringing together two assets, which uh, is like the you know, the Reese's peanut butter cap uh, example? <laughs> uh, is it uh, you know better uh, you know together? And so it, there's you know there's a this notion that the majority discount is uh, you know easily calculated, but as soon as you kind of go into the real world and, and actually look at what happened, you know, in transactions, it t typically becomes quite hard quite quickly. And so, it, it, with this concept of minority discount, how does how does this how do you sort of see this playing in in the transfer pricing space? How can, how can economists use use those notions in in getting to the right arm's length price? Yeah, I think it it, uh, it it gets to this question we were just talking about, um, which is what decision rights are involved in the creation of the transfer pricing uh, uh, transaction that, that's at issue. Um, and control then becomes uh, an important uh, element of analyzing what the, uh, you know, the, the, the pricing should be. Or lack thereof. <laughs> or, yeah, exactly. So if, you are, yeah. if you are the controlled party, you know you might not have as much um, license to say, you know, 
I, you're 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 less powerful in the transaction and so you yeah and you know one of the aspects here that um you know i think you know the world's really uh struggling with right now is how do you identify control within a corporation and uh is it associated with headcount for instance yeah. or is it uh you know you know associated with uh you know you know clear decision rights and uh I think as we go forward with uh, kind of new transfer pricing documentation, this notion of uh, control is probably a good one to, to document as opposed to just leaving uh, unstated. Right. It's kind of, I think it's implied, you know, a lot of times because you're dealing with subs and, you know, or headquarter costs that you're pushing out. And so it's implied that um, the, the other parties are, are the controlled parties in that in that situation but i, I think you're right yeah, yeah and I, as i was going back to this example of uh kind of a tax director who you know creates value mm -hmm. uh their focus on that kind of question yeah. and then going to the really important next step which is talking to the business people and getting them to actually implement uh the transfer pricing uh strategy within the you know the company's uh, managerial accounting system uh, you know their their you know business policies that becomes yeah you know, that makes a really compelling case. Uh, you know, Steve, I'm sure you find that the, the hardest cases are ones where the transfer pricing doesn't line up with the business economics. Right, the policy is one thing, but then you know the the group in Italy, their <laughs> the local country CFO does it this way, and that's just how it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's it's it is crucial and and difficult to sort of match up your functions with and and sort of the reporting lines with the actual uh, with with the actual sort of transfer pricing structure. Yeah, um, exactly. And and Lauren, that's I mean that sort of brings us to some of the notions that you know BEPS 1.0 was really trying to get at was how do we get to these sort of dempy functions? Right. <laughs> Who's doing what and where, as opposed to what that say on paper? Right, and and I take it, Mike, that there's ways that economists can sort of distinguish scenarios where a minority discount makes sense from from those where it doesn't, and that is a sort of a mechanism for locating control within a within a group. Yeah, that's true, and um, uh, exactly. And then, uh, in terms of uh, benchmarking uh, the, the discount, uh, there's an important uh, task of saying what's a, a relevant comparable transaction. Uh, you know, many of the you see a uh, for you know smaller trend, uh, uh, you know, both smaller transactions and in other parts of the implementation of the tax code, minority discounts. Um, Kind of get, I hate to say it this way, but they kind of get slapped on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, without actually asking, is this uh, you know, comparable? Um, whereas in uh, this notion of comparability is, um, you know, at the heart and soul of uh, transfer pricing. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike, th this has been fascinating, and uh, we really appreciate you uh, coming on. So, so thanks yeah. for your insight. Well, thanks. It's been uh, I've been very much enjoyed talking with uh, the two of you. It's uh, uh, it's always unpredictable, and, and it's always. <laughs> um, 
And uh, for our listeners, if you have uh, topics and ideas, please feel free to email us. You can let us know at podcasts at milchev.com. That's podcasts, plural, at M-I-L-C-H-E-V.com. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you.